The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. How you doing? Happy Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back to the only true democracy in talk. You can hear us on radio, on stream, on podcast, and watch us on LinkedIn Live, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and Twitter's Periscope. Joining us today is Scott Paul. Good to have him back, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Now, the AAM is a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the USW United Steelworkers Union. For over 16 years, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top of mind issue for voters and our national leaders, and they've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. We know they're uh, definitely successful. We're seeing manufacturing jobs rise. Uh, we're seeing information that has been put out there for years as to how do you get corporations to bring the factories back, uh, passed in legislation under the Biden administration. Check out the website. You can find about this and more, AmericanManufacturing.org. And on Twitter, follow them at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Hey, Scott, happy Tuesday. Thank you for joining us. Um, I was just talking about, uh, you know, manufacturing jobs, and I think it's fair to say that manufacturing manufacturing jobs, specifically those factory jobs, they're booming. Prince might have said, you know, party like it's 1999, the Biden administration can boast, we're bringing jobs, factory jobs back. It's booming like it's the 1970s. Is that uh, is, is that a little bit uh, too Pollyanna and optimistic, or is that right on? Yeah, well, hey, I love the trajectory of this. I mean, there's a lot of work to do to make it durable, to make it sustainable. Uh, but what we've seen, uh, certainly, you know, since uh, the, the the president took office, um, is a uh, massive jobs recovery in manufacturing of the likes we really haven't seen since the 1970s. Um, now, uh, you know, some of this is the fact that, you know, the economy got back on track. And I, I do think the administration deserves credit for a suite of economic policies that helped to ease that transition back uh, and, and also public health policies. I, I think that played an important role. Um, and I think another thing that played an important role is the fact that, and, and I, I'm sure you did this, I know we did, you know, when you know, it, it first, you know, in the couple in the first 18 months of the pandemic or so, we just bought a lot of stuff. Right. I mean, we, we you know, people didn't travel. Uh, they didn't go to movie theaters, uh, but they bought an awful lot of goods. And, and so that created demand in factories probably more than there otherwise uh, would be. Um, and the most but the most exciting thing to me, and I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this in in greater detail. And I know we will is the fact that I think that this is just the start of great things to come, uh, because we've seen over the last uh, year in particular so many new factory announcements. Um, and these slide below the national news radar because they're not 
nearly as sexy as some of these other political issues or cultural issues that, that get a conversation. But but the value of these factory openings to communities uh, can't be understated. And we've seen them in so many different sectors, in so many different parts of the country, uh, that for years to come, uh, we're going to see manufacturing job openings because these factories haven't even opened their doors yet, right? I mean, these they're just breaking ground on them. And so uh, over the next couple of years, we're going to see some more good things to come as well, Leslie. You know, I am a pessimist, and I've heard a lot of pessimistic statements when it comes to American manufacturing, specifically the jobs. Um, one is, well, you know, we're outsourcing, right? We're uh, we're never we're never going to see factory jobs boom like it's the 1970s because of one outsourcing. Number two, automation. Today, there was one cashier at the supermarket. I had somewhere to go at a certain time. I had food in my car, and I'm like, I am not coming back and doing this hour again. I'm going to go through self-checkout. I don't enjoy doing that, quite frankly. I feel like I'm taking somebody's job, possibly, you know, with that automation. And uh, then, of course, recession. Everybody says we're entering into a recession, and recession has led to, and you've pointed it out in the past, and today you touched upon it, uh, to the loss of factory jobs. And not only loss of factory jobs, but factory jobs that have never returned. So we're not seeing history repeat itself. And we're not seeing the pessimist right here and the doomsday naysayers. Um, are you surprised by that? Despite the automation, despite the outsourcing, despite economic woes post-pandemic that people say we are in or we're entering into a recession. And these numbers are just saying, sorry, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Leslie, uh, you know, I, I think I think some skepticism is always welcome and necessary for this. Uh, but I, I, and I, I am a huge booster of American manufacturing. I mean, it's my job, it's my passion. Uh, and this kind of momentum that we've seen is, as I think surpassed even my wildest expectations, uh, to, to be honest, because it is like a perfect storm. So, um, I do think that, uh, you know, there, there will be automation, there will be robotics. I mean, that's going to happen. Uh, that's happening right now. Uh, but but that will create different job, different types of jobs in factories. Uh, you know, instead of like doing the heavy lifting, you may be doing uh, robot maintenance or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, there'll be roughly number the, the same number of jobs that will be producing more stuff. Um, I think that's where it makes a difference. And, and number two, there will always be outsourcing. I, I, I don't have uh, any any question about that as well. But I do think that China is a lot less attractive of a destination for that than it was, say, 5, 10, or 20 years ago, uh, in part because of the lessons that we learned during the pandemic, that, it, that having a far-flung supply chain uh, carries with it inherent risks. And then I think, that, I think the second aspect of that is that the behavior of the authoritarian regime in Beijing had, has made it far riskier for big companies to do business in China uh, than it had before, because they're exposed to criticism about human rights violations. Um, it's certainly going to be harder to meet a sustainability or a carbon neutrality goal in China uh, with the production methods there than it is some other places in the world like the United States. Uh, and we've also seen uh, Beijing 
you do some saber rattling, uh, and they may ultimately hold some supply, some supply chains um, uh, hostage, or they may also um, decide to uh, institute a blockade if there's an escalation with respect to Taiwan. So these are all considerations that are swirling around business executives' minds right now. Uh, and so there is some uncertainty, but I think generally speaking, um, the, the playing field has leveled a bit. And in fact, in some cases, it's tilted back to the United States, uh, in part because we've also been making, for a change, some smart public policy decisions uh, to aid this along. Is the con- Does the consumer play a role in any of this, uh, Scott? In other words, um, are consumers more likely to care about where their products are made that they're buying? And are Americans sponsoring American-made products and local mom and pops as opposed to products that are manufactured and, and produced in China? Yeah, the, uh, look, there's a strong consumer sentiment for uh, made in America. And you see that, uh, I would say, most prevalently in automobile ads. Like if you look at all the auto ads, uh, even for some of the global manufacturers uh, like BMW or Hyundai, they're always quick to point out the cars they make in the United States. Okay, so I think that that is certainly a factor. And even if you don't necessarily care about like exactly where something is produced, uh, a lot, many more people care how it's produced. And then that becomes a factor because it's hard to claim a sustainability uh, credential or a I care about workers or human rights credential uh, if you're also manufacturing in a country like China, which has widespread uh, labor human rights violations and a lot of carbon output uh, in their industrial sector. So, so yes, I think that the scale is tilting towards that. I mean, look, we have to make good products, quality products that people want. We have to make them cost competitively. But I think those other factors are uh, more prevalent uh, and more uh, you know, more important to consumers than they have been in the past. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to uh, continue this conversation with Scott about factory jobs booming uh, like it's the 1970s. This is only good news, not only for the economy, but certainly the American worker and the uh, industry of manufacturing. Uh, which we used to be uh, king of, queen of, top of the hill, and maybe it'll come again. Uh, I'm Leslie Marshall, back with Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Right after this, go to AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow him on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM and fo- follow the AAM at Keep It Made. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, president of the Alliance of American Manufacturing. We have a lot to talk about. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. At, and on Twitter, follow Scott at ScottPaulAAM and follow uh, the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. Scott and I were talking about factory jobs. They are booming under this administration. We are seeing numbers that uh, jobs, uh, factory jobs that date back to the 1970s. Before we move on to some other issues and topics, I had more to ask you about this, uh, Scott. Um, first of all, I read that American manufacturers have now added enough jobs to regain all that they shed and then some. Um, A, is that correct? And B, is that just a jaw dropper, even for those who predicted inside and outside the manufacturing sector or, you know, economists uh, based on what they thought would happen versus what is actually happening, what they're seeing happen with these numbers? 
Yeah, Leslie, it is accurate. I mean, uh, not only have manufacturers uh, essentially hired back all the jobs that were shed during the pandemic-induced recession, they're adding more, and they're adding more every month now. Um, and so that part is true. Now, if you looked at the total manufacturing jobs in the United States at the end of 1979 compared to now, you know, we've got a long way to go to get back up there. I, I don't think we will just because the nature of our economy has changed so much. And, and that shouldn't necessarily uh, be our goal. But there is no reason to think that we can't keep adding jobs. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's a lot to be concerned about. I mean, the, the Fed's approach to inflation, the strength of the dollar, uh, if the, the housing market, uh, you know, tumbles a little bit. These are all things that are going to impact the fortunes of American manufacturing. But there are also, again, I think reasons to be optimistic uh, that we can and will be adding jobs in the months to year to come. We, we expect auto sales to continue to be brisk. And in fact, electric vehicle auto sales are going to be really spurred on by the new incentives that been that have been put into place. And just today, uh, Micron, uh, a big semiconductor company, announced that it's building a brand new factory in upstate New York, uh, outside of Syracuse. I mean, you know, I, I know that you, you know, you have, uh, you've spent time in upstate New York as well, and the and it, factories were closing. Yes. There for decades and decades. Yep. And, and this is just the latest announcement that we've seen of a factory opening. And so it's going to take a couple of years to build it, but there's going to be thousands of people uh, involved with that uh, once it's done. And that's a massive uh, tens of billions of dollars investment for upstate New York in high tech, well-paying manufacturing jobs. So I, I am excited uh, about uh, what lies ahead here. Uh, so so much to say about this. I know we have more uh, to, to move on to, but I, I do want to touch upon two things. Um, one of which is there was a movie called Nomad Land, and um, what what's her name? Um, uh, uh, Francis. Uh, you guys know I'm talking about. It was. Uh, I'll have to look it up. Um, I'm not always good with names. Anyway, she's an incredible actress, and they used real people in the movie. And in in this movie, if you haven't seen it, have you seen it? Scott? Francis yeah. McDormand. Yeah. Francis. McDormand, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I need more. Mark, why aren't you around with me when I'm doing my teenager <laughs> schedules and teachers? And yeah, I know you. What's your name again? Uh, anyway, so um, it, it was it was about her life, how she had a home and 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 her husband had a job and she had a job. This whole town was dependent upon this one factory. And the reason I say that is in this movie, and not just in movies, but certainly in real life. We are very aware when you look at Buffalo's and Pittsburgh's and, and, and Cleveland's with steel, for example, or you just look at other towns like in this Nomadland uh, movie where a uh, factory closes and, and those people are screwed. I, I mean, really, I mean, they, they lose their they lose their home. They lose their livelihood. They lose their plans, their future. Um, they may have to uproot and leave. They may be homeless like in the movie. And the reason I say that is this is the opposite of that. Yeah. And, and to your point. When when you we know what it looks like, the ghost town it becomes when a factory leaves, how devastating that is to a community. It is the opposite when you bring a, a you know, a, a factory in a production plant in like you're talking about in Syracuse. So I just I'm very excited about that for that community 
that's already there. Because when you open it, okay, not only does it, do you have jobs now, now you got maybe you can buy that house that you've been renting. And and now it brings more people in and more people buying coffee at, you know, Mary and Joe's little coffee shop on the corner that's and right. the dry cleaner and uh, the, the little market. I mean, the list just goes on. It's, it's, it's all positive. I just love that. You know, one of the three of the engines in this recovery um, include and I want I want you to tell us why you think it's these industries and what do they know that other industries don't pharmaceutical plants, craft breweries and ice cream makers. They seem to be, you know, the the, the top three for why yeah. we have these numbers. Is, is this the case? I'm surprised they didn't have coffee uh, shops <laughs> or yoga studios. Yeah. So, so I, I, yeah, it's a, I mean, I'm only chuckling because, um, th they are, I, I mean, they're, they're what, and, and Janet Yellen has talked about this as well. I mean, there's some stuff that we bought a lot more of. Okay. And, and that's certainly the case for craft beer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's certainly the case. During for COVID especially, right? Yeah. I don't know that the health benefits of that are super awesome over the long, long term, but, but, but I will say that. Uh, it continues this localization phase and the fact that people turned a little bit more towards goods consumption. Now, pharmaceuticals is the other example that we were talking about. And that's the fact that we also realized that we were overly dependent on active pharmaceutical ingredients uh, and other types of uh, life-saving medicines from countries like China. And when a pandemic pops up, uh, you aren't the first in line, uh, you're, you're the last in line. And, and so having more of that capacity uh, in the United States uh, it was something that was deemed very important. And there have been some incentives uh, that have been put into place both in the last administration and this administration to, to kind of bring some of that pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the United States as well. And, and again, another product of that, you haven't seen this in the jobs totals yet, but you will in the future are things like semiconductors, where we're also yeah. making that investment. And you're going to see semiconductor manufacturing employment surge. Uh, we're going to see an ROI in the form of jobs, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal had a, a, an article um, uh, talking about the economic turmoil separating manufacturing's have and have nots. And the Institute, uh, and they mentioned in the article, the Institute for Supply Management reported that its index of manufacturing activity slipped to 50.9 in September from 52.8 in August. That's not good, but what is good is this is the 28th month in a row that it was above 50. Uh, speak to us about that, please. Yeah, yeah, so things are still strong. I mean, people are, yeah, almost every manufacturer I know is still hiring, right, and is, is looking for people to work. Uh, and so I think all of that is fantastic. I also worry that the Fed, in its uh, quest to fight inflation, uh, that's going to have some nasty side effects for us uh, if it cools. Can, down. can you hold that thought? Because I don't. Yeah. I don't want. We have to take a break. I want to hear about the nasty side effects that the Fed is going to have for us when we return. Talking about an article in the Wall Street Journal about the economic turmoil separating manufacturing have and have not. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott Paul. Be sure. To follow him on Twitter at Scott Paul AM, follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA, and check out the website AmericanManufacturing.org. Back in a moment. 
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Go to their website, AmericanManufacturing.org, to find out more. Follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, before the break, we were talking about a Wall Street Journal article um, about uh, the economic turmoil separating manufacturing's have and have nots and talking specifically about the Institute for Supply Management that reported the index of manufacturing activity slipping to 50.9% uh, in September from a 52.8% in August. But for 28 months in a row now, this is above 50. You were speaking to that and you were talking about some bad news possibly or bad decisions that could be coming down the pipe from the Fed as a result. Yeah, Leslie. So, you know, we're, we're still in a period of growth for manufacturing and that, that's important. But but there are a couple of things that I, I think are, 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 you know, kind of storm clouds on the horizon. And it could be the case that the Fed and its zeal to fight, fight inflation um, will be also instituting uh, some policies that have some nasty side effects for manufacturing. If uh, interest rates go too high and mortgage rates go too high and the housing market cools off too much. That means that new construction of housing will stop. Uh, that, obviously, that is an impact on the housing market. But if you think about it as well, all the manufacturing firms supplying building materials for that will be impacted. OK, so, so that's one possible impact. The other possible impact, uh, and, and this is where we delve into monetary policy, is that uh, you know, when we're raising our own interest rates, uh, that tends to strengthen the U.S. dollar, which sounds like an awesome thing, having a strong currency. Uh, and it is, certainly if you're a tourist going to, say, Paris uh, or to London right now, you can get a good deal. But for manufacturing, it can be a real problem uh, because it makes our exports more expensive to sell overseas. And so other countries will buy fewer of them, and that could reduce the demand for in factories in the United States. And um, it's also going to have some impact on uh, you know other countries. Their economies are going to weaken. Um, their local demand is going to go down. And if their factories are going to be looking for uh, for markets for their products, and they could end up in the United States, and that again could displace jobs here. So. Uh, there's some concern that that could that that could happen. And so hopefully the Fed will cool it uh, and will realize that we're, you know, we've we've kind of achieved the objective of, of putting the brakes on things a little bit. Um, uh, but but otherwise, again, you know, you're you know, I've joked that, you know, one thing that there's a shortage of now is ribbon cutting material because there have been so many factory openings in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been hard for the Biden administration to get to all of them, but they are worth celebrating. Uh, and, and there's something that's, that are going to have profound impacts, uh, certainly on the communities uh, where those uh, citing decisions have been made uh, in, in the years to come. So this report is not all bad news, obviously, for U.S. Uh, factories. Uh, you were talking about semiconductors, you know, which we had a shortage. Legislation, you know, could certainly, definitely, hopefully turn that around. And we'll see those numbers. But there also appears to be a strong underlying demand for new cars. 
Um, and, and I say that because, you know, we all know that Economics 101 is supply and demand. Um, so does the demand for new cars, for example, or, or other products, and then when we see semiconductor uh, numbers change going down the pike, um, will that flip this or improve the news for U.S. factories uh, based on these numbers, based on these percentages? Yeah, that the, that the auto demand has remained strong, and part of it is because there, were, there was a limited amount of supply uh, because of the semiconductor shortage, uh, and so there is pent-up demand. And uh, people were both either literally waiting for cars um, or uh, waiting for prices to cool off uh, because, you know, you know, if you saw the car market, you know, a year ago, it was there'd been a lot of price escalation. Uh, And so I I do think that you can see some continued strength there. Um, And then the electric vehicle tax credits uh, kick in as well. And so for people who are in that market, uh, there's going to be an added incentive uh, to, to get involved there. It could be up to 7,500 bucks. Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, circumstances. So, uh, so, so yeah, there's, I think there's some optimism, optimism. It just, you know, I, I'm not smart enough to know which of these forces is going to win out uh, in the end, but I, I know that all of those issues that you, that, that you articulated, the autos, the, the, the uh, interest rates, the inflation, uh, those are all going to be considerations uh, as we look ahead over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, one of your employees, Elizabeth Brotherton Bunch, uh, wrote a great piece uh, entitled Bipartisan Bill aims to make sure technology invented in the USA is made in the USA. And, you know, maybe a lot of people don't understand. And I want to give an example that she uh, wrote about. Um, she talked about the uh, vanadium redox flow battery. Um, NPR said it was the size of a refrigerator. It has the ability to change the world because they can charge and discharge energy for 30 years. And that's enough power uh, to enough energy to power a house, an entire household. Uh, And, you know, for those of us here in California that have had, you know, some uh, rolling uh, blackouts or people that are living in places like Florida, Texas, and have dealt with uh, Mother Nature. um, Now, these batteries were invented in the United States. American companies were ready. They were able to manufacture them. But the Department of Energy stepped in and sent production to China. So two things here. One, why would the Department of Energy, the United States Department of Energy, do that? I mean, they are our geopolitical opponents, not allies, you know, when it comes to manufacturing. And two, talk to us about this legislation uh, ensuring that uh, if it's invented here, it's made here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think th- this is this is an important question, and this is uh, you know th- this has been going on unfortunately for lots of years. It happened. Uh, it's happened in the Biden administration, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, the Bush administration, and then going back. Uh, and and the deal is this: you know, the the federal government uh, puts some money into. Um, applied research uh, for new technologies like this. And, and, you know, battery technology isn't new, but having a battery like this is, I mean, it's massive, as you point out, but it has capabilities both to store energy, and you think about it, it could be from a solar grid or somewhere else remote, uh, right? And, and then also, uh, again, to transmit in, uh, energy for for a lengthy period of of time, which is a game changer uh, in these in these situations that you described, um, where where you need some backup. So um, the problem is that a lot of this research is also done with the private sector, and the private sector 
wants to monetize it as quickly as possible. And so, so, so wait, 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 wait. So, so yeah, maybe we developed a new technology, but we'd like to go make this in China because we can make more money <laughs> that way than, than producing it in the United States. And so, unfortunately, uh, agencies like uh, Department of Energy and others have, have waived this make it in America requirement uh, over the years. And this legislation, which is bipartisan, I would point out, uh, wants to stop that and say, if you're getting this federal research money uh, for something that, that taxpayers are helping to develop, uh, we expect you to manufacture it in the United States uh, and there ain't going to be no more waivers. So um, we like it. You know, we've endorsed it. Uh, we hope that it will become uh, a reality. Um, and I think that, you know, it just shows what a, you know, if we're developing this and you see it being made overseas, it kind of is very frustrating, uh, in part because you know that's some job potential uh, in the United States. But you also know that in case of emergency or in case of something unforeseen like the pandemic, is that we're not going to have access to that production, Leslie, uh, in, unless we're making it uh, in the U.S. So I'm glad the senators raised up this issue, uh, and we certainly hope that this bill will become law. Before we hit our break here, anything else you want to say in Elizabeth's piece or the Invent Here, Make Here Act, um, you know, building on Buy America standards? Yeah, I, I think that there's a rationale for it in that this administration has been very aggressive on uh, Buy America and, and wanting the federal government to purchase American products uh, when we're either rebuilding infrastructure or putting in a new clean energy infrastructure or just making purchases. And so this is highly consistent with that. And it's a loophole uh, that we certainly hope is going to be addressed, uh, is going to be fixed, uh, perhaps in the lame duck session, uh, mm. uh, you know, or, uh, or, or uh, you know, carrying over to, to the next Congress uh, when, when they would get back into town uh, in January. We'll talk about Congress and uh, actually the House and the Senate when we return. We'll continue talking with Scott Paul and with you. Uh, I certainly hope you will check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. See everything that the AAM can teach you. Uh, and the AAM, you can follow them at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. We'll be back right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. We are back with Scott Paul. He's president of the AAM, Alliance for American Manufacturing. Please follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM and check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Uh, um, you know, we have so much to talk about, Scott. Thank you for holding and welcome back. And the legislation we were just talking about, which would have, hey, look, if you invent it here, you got to make it here, was actually bipartisan in nature. That's something we're seeing a lot of when it comes to, you know, manufacturing and infrastructure. Um, and that's definitely, um, I know as a voter, uh, because, you know, we see those numbers, uh, you know, with low congressional uh, approval ratings, uh, you know, certainly something voters want to see. Let's talk about more bipartisanship. Uh, there's a bipartisan group of House and Senate leaders calling on the president to regulate outbound investments. Uh, and they're calling specifically, specifically for an executive order to fortify America's critical supply chains and national security through, quote, increased transparency and oversight over outbound investments. This was a letter, a bipartisan letter that was sent uh, to the president. Um, can you tell us about this? Uh, what this executive order would do in order to fortify America's critical supply chains and our national security uh, simultaneously. 
Yeah, thank you, Leslie. So first of all, I think the administration will issue such an executive order. Um, and uh, I think it's worth noting that some of the signatories of this congressional letter included uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, the, the Democratic leader of the Senate, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and John Cornyn. Uh, you know, whether, you know, when it, when you never hear those names in the sa same sentence. It's pretty rare, isn't it? Um, but but it goes and you and you you kind of raised this up before that, you know, the, the both. I mean, the infrastructure bill, the chips bill, this I mean, this stuff does get bipartisan support. Uh, and I think that's important. And, and there have been a lot of disagreements uh, that the parties have had. Uh, but but I think these sorts of issues is, is when there's the, where there's been some alignment uh, and fundamentally to break it down to people. The issue is this is that we have uh, lots of global companies that are headquartered in the United States and do a lot of business here. Um, they make investment decisions all over the world. Sometimes those investment decisions uh, have worked in bad ways for our economy and our national security. And there have been a couple of examples of that, particularly with investments that firms have made in China. Uh, and so, uh, you know, both, you know, the, the effect of these investments is to, you know, factories were built in China, um, jobs were displaced, but uh, technology was transferred uh, and, and national security, uh, you know, could have been compromised uh, as well in some way. And so the idea of a review uh, is to say, if our companies are going to be investing in a country like China, um, the appropriate agencies of the federal government should take a look at it uh, to make sure there's going to be no harm uh, to U.S. national security here. And it's worth noting that we have such a review in place for investment coming into the United States right now. So uh, if a country, uh, or I'm sorry, if a company uh, that is based in China uh, or other countries wants to invest in the United States, uh, there's a review that takes place to ensure that that investment uh, isn't going to harm our national security uh, in some way uh, that's already done in law. It's called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And so this would this would just kind of flip that um, and look at that investment uh, headed, headed to countries like China as well. And also these uh, individuals, perhaps why we see their name in the same sentence, the only other reason we would is their lead sponsors of the National Critical Capabilities Defense Act, the NCCDA. Uh, uh, anything more on that, Scott, uh, before we move on? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the idea of shedding light on this uh, will make it. Uh, I, I will. I think some make some companies think twice about uh, investments that may look promising for profit reasons in China, uh, but may create other challenges uh, for our economy down the road. And so it's one of those things that Congress tried to get done but couldn't, uh, as part of that that chips bill didn't quite make it over the finish line as part of that. Uh, and so leaning on the, the Biden administration to try to take some executive action uh, as a first step here. Speaking of the Biden administration, uh, there's something um, 
Are we really still blocking trade adjustment assistance? Matthew McCullen, your great employee at AAM, uh, wrote about this. TAA, we've had you on the program talk about TAA, trade adjustment assistance in the past. It's a program that helps American workers displaced by import competition reskill for new careers. Uh, Millions of people were served by it since its inception in 1974. About 100,000 people affected by it in a positive manner every year. Congress let its funding lapse. Why is the Biden administration actively you know, uh, acting on TAA um, or even pursuing new trade agreements, which I think, you know, ergo would end up with, uh, you know, uh, money for TAA. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- this is the uh, this is one of those perplexing things um, uh, that, that, that where politics is playing the primary role. And um, and, and this is also called, uh, you know, legislative hostage taking um, by uh, some Republicans in the Senate and the House of Representatives. And so I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm assuming you're not buying the Republican, um, you know, if we don't have a serious significant trade agenda that opens up markets for American workers, TAA doesn't make much sense. You say bumpkiss to that. No, 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 because, I mean, we already have trade agreements in place uh, that unfortunately sometimes displace uh, production in the U.S., uh, okay, the, and they're already in place, whether it's the uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement or the um, uh, permanent national uh, trade relations for China uh, or other free trade agreements with countries around the world, uh, sometimes jobs end up getting displaced in the United States. And and, and hopefully your listeners don't even know about trade justice, adjustment assistance because um, it is a, it's a really unfortunate thing to need to, uh, need to request assistance from that program, but it happens when there are mass layoffs at a factory that is closed down and moved overseas. And the program has helped millions of people since its inception. And, uh, it's one of those things that you don't know about unless you really need it. Uh, but the people who need it really need it. Because otherwise, what happens uh, when you lose your job in a factory, and we talked about this as an earlier segment, is that that community is changed forever. And you used the example of nomad land, no, nomad land because that, I mean, that factory was the entire town. There wasn't, there literally wasn't anything. That's all there was. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, it's not necessarily that bleak in other places, but, but it can be pretty bad. And particularly in some of these small, smaller towns, if, if the main factory closes down, there's not a lot of other economic opportunity, and if if a factory worker who's been laid off gets another job, it's likely to be in a much lower paying occupation. Right now, the exception to that is when uh, a factory worker who's been laid off can access trade adjustment assistance benefits. Because what does that mean? They can get classes at a community college. They can get different types of skills like welding uh, or even you know, how to open a small business or other things like that and get some income support uh, at the same time. And so it- Because maybe you have a really specific skill set to that particular factory and you could work in manufacturing elsewhere with if you learned another skill set, which this would provide. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, and what we know- is that workers who have access to trade adjustment assistance benefits end up accumulating 
$50,000 more in income over a 10-year period after their layoff than a factory worker who doesn't have access to that program. Wow. So that is a substantial difference Very much. in income for anybody. So it's shameful that Republicans are saying, unless we do more free trade deals, we're not going to do this trade adjustment assistance. It, it shouldn't be, workers shouldn't be a hostage to a philosophy right. like that. So th that's why the steelworkers, and I know the steelworkers president, Tom Conway, feels very passionately about this because so many of his members have had to access this program yeah. over the years. And, and, and we're raising up this issue uh, because it shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be a trade-off that, right. that no pun intended. Biden has to do more free where we're going to hold it uh, hostage. That, that makes no sense to us at all. Uh, Scott, time always flies. I always learn a lot and enjoy having you on. Scott Paul, president of the AAM. Check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow him on Twitter at Scott Paul, AAM, and follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. Thank you, Scott. Thank you uh, for getting all this information out to us and to all our listeners and to our viewers. I know they learned something, and that's good every day we're above ground to learn something, right? Eh? <laughs>